Welcome to your Breakthrough Blueprint. I'm your host, Becky Oste, a wife, mom, and trauma-informed marriage coach. After a decade of trying all the mainstream modalities of healing to save my marriage, I found myself two kids later separated and on the verge of divorce. That's when I stumbled upon the unconventional game changer of somatic work that not only resurrected my dying marriage, but bled into breakthroughs in my parenting, purpose, spirituality, health, wealth, business, and more in just six months. My intention with this podcast is simple. Through every weekly episode, my goal for you is that one, you realize how insanely collective our struggles are, that you're not even close to alone. Two, that you can laugh a little because God knows we need it. And three, that you walk away with actionable advice on how to design your unique blueprint for your breakthrough life. So get your earbuds in, grab your coffee so you can sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Hello, friends. I I really can't even tell you uh, how excited I am for today's episode. I mean, I'm always excited to re- record, but this one is so special, near and dear to my heart. I have a guest on who has been one of the most pivotal, influential, um, positive, you know, people in my life and in my recovery and healing journey. And so I have the honor of inviting Sarah Beth Felushko onto the podcast today. And before I give her official bio, I just wanted to say welcome. And how are you today, Sarah? I am doing wonderfully. And I'm just incredibly grateful and honored to have been invited to walk this story with you today. So for those of you who don't know Sarah, she's a master practitioner in clinical counseling. She's conducted numerous workshops and retreats and has been a keynote speaker at events, small and large, all throughout Canada, the U.S., Cyprus, Turkey, Greece, Israel. She's a world traveler with this wisdom that she has. She also has two sons who are both married and six grandchildren. She's passionate about life and believes that it's possible to have lifelong relationships that are mutually respectful and intimate and immensely fulfilling. So that's her official bio. We're in for a treat. And today we're really going to unpack. I was talking to Sarah before this. I was like, there's a million different things I could pick your brain on. Um, But just for today's episode, we're going to dive into grief recovery. What is grief? What is, you know, some myths around grief and a way to properly grieve and all things grief recovery. And so to start off, Sarah, I would love to ask you just what led you to be so passionate about this grief recovery work? Thank you. Um, My mother died of a brain tumor when I was seven. I had just turned seven starting in grade two. And um, after a two year illness that, uh, Uh, was crushing for a family with four children. Uh, My youngest brother was two when she died. So she became ill immediately after he was born. My oldest brother was um, 12 when she died. So uh, that uh, launched us into a a world of confusion and um, sort of it turned our world upside down without a mom. And we were supported. We had family, friends, grandparents, but there is a hole in your life when a parent dies. Then my dad remarried and uh, he married someone uh, who was uh, unprepared for 
the life with four grieving children, still grieving children, and a husband who had not uh, completed his own grief with his wife. So that was the beginning of my uh, life process or understanding of grief. That's so young. And I, I know we connect on that. And, you know, I lost my dad at 18. And for those of you who also don't know how Sarah and I met is it was at a, a teen camp with our church. <laughs> and if you had listened to my earlier episode, um, one of the very first ones when I talk about like my breakthrough and my story, I talked about a traumatic experience at that camp where my co-counselor was having the time of her life. And I was up until like five in the morning having an anxiety attack surrounded by teen girls separated from my husband and having to give like a keynote speech the next morning, a training for the whole camp. And I found Sarah that morning at breakfast on like two hours of sleep, like body in total anxiety and on the verge of tears, trying to hold it together. And that was the first time that I ever spoke to her. And I just remember being washed over with this feeling of like relief and radical acceptance for exactly where I was and I remember the image she gave me in that moment of just the waves of the ocean and letting your your emotions, the tears like come in like waves of the ocean, feel them and then release them. And it gave me permission because I felt like I was, you know, I was very young too. I was in this environment that I thought I had to keep it together. And Sarah was the first person to really meet me where I was at. And I went on to continue working with her for years. She was my counselor. And um, for those of you who know my story, I've had a lot of therapists, a lot of counselors. And, you know, I was stuck spinning my wheels um, working in a lot of those professional partnerships. But Sarah is the real deal, guys. And what she has taught me has been you know, forever embedded in my psyche, in my own practice. Um, the tools she has given me have just been life-changing. And so that was how I first met Sarah. <laughs> was that that teen camp? Do you remember that? Very well. I remember it very well. <laughs> Did you enjoy how... teen camp or was it just me suffering? <laughs> I would come home and sleep for a week after teen camp. <laughs> Because I was up in the night, especially until I developed Identified Map It, which was a way to begin to help kids process rapidly. So especially before that, it was a tough time. I also got lice from teen camp. It was just, you know, the <laughs> universe was against me. <laughs> of course. So let's define grief. Let's start there. What is grief? Uh, it's such a good question. Um, grief is the normal and natural uh, response to a change in or end of uh, a familiar pattern of behavior. So it's not really what you think, right? You think it's the loss of something you had and now you don't have it and there's this hole in your life, but it's the, it is the change. It can even be a change in a familiar pattern of behavior. Uh, I was out in a, uh, a parking lot um, grabbing something quick to eat in a strip mall and this lady comes out of the grocery store across way across the other side and she starts going car to car to car to car to car and and then row to row and I'm like 
okay, wow. Like usually if you lose your car, you're kind of close. Like, you know, it's within a certain area. So she came all the way across and ended up, it was the car next to mine. So I get out of the car and I go to her and say, are you okay? Are you okay? And she said, my dog died yesterday. And that is such an example. She said, it's not my dog. It's not even my dog. It's my son's dog. But he greets me when I get up in the morning. I meet him after work. So that change in the familiar pattern of behavior was, it's an illustration of what grief is. Wow. Okay. Change in the familiar pattern or behavior, which is like life is <laughs> constantly changing. <laughs> so grief is, is everywhere. You know, it's something we all may experience, you know, what I'm picking up from this definition, but what are some common myths about grief? Oh, well, um, because we learn about grief, um, it's not in a book. We don't take it in a course in school. Uh, we learn about it when we observe the world around us. So as we are in a family and our, our grandmother dies and we are tuned in as children, really tuned in to the the feel of the home and the people around us when grandma dies. So how does mom respond? How does dad respond? How do my siblings respond? How does the family respond? So if everyone is uh, quiet and um, go to their, everyone goes to their room and no one talks, then we get a message from that about grief. We get the message that uh, grief is not something that you can bear, that painful emotions are impossible to bear, and that we need to grieve by ourselves. And so that's one of the myths we have about grief that exist about grief is that you need to grieve alone, but we learn it from our childhood experiences. Hmm. So you, that's interesting, the point you made about picking up kind of the energy or the vibe of those around you in the home that you grew up in. Can you unpack that one a little bit more? Because, you know, I'm intrigued, even with the work, you know, I got obsessed with recently of the body keeping the score and that starting since childhood. Could you unpack that piece just a little bit more? Yes, I'm really happy to, because it leads into this idea of how children grieve, uh, because a lot of our understanding about grief begins when we're children. And we have grief. We have losses very young in our life. You know, our our new toy truck gets run over when mom backs out of the driveway or um, so we children uh, absorb grief through sensations, through their smell, through their senses. Uh, if they visit someone in a hospital, they remember that, that smell of like uh, urine and uh, medication. They remember the clicking sounds, all the machines running uh, they they absorb the environment through their senses, and they're um, and they don't know how to process what's going on. They don't have the big picture about what's going on, and so that remains in them. Some become triggers for later experiences. Then grief builds upon grief, losses build upon losses, and grief becomes complex grief instead of um, regular grief. It reminds me even of a time when my son, who's now seven, can you believe Ollie's seven? Ah. I can't believe it. 
But he remembered the old townhouse we lived in, and we moved out of there when he was, like, three. So I was even surprised, but he was, like, out of the blue one day, Mom, I miss our old townhouse. And I almost didn't think, I didn't take it seriously at first, and I was like, what do you remember from there? And he, like, described exactly what was in the backyard. And I don't know if I had just had a conversation with you about this or something, but there was, like, I remember consciously choosing to explore that more with him as opposed to like brushing it off which is what I would normally do like eh, it's weird and we talked about it and I just like asked him questions and what do you miss about it and validated like yeah that's so hard when we move we miss the memories but so I'm curious like what advice do you have for parents even in situations where kids are going through transitions all the time faster than us what advice do you have for the mamas mm-hmm. I could probably take the whole session talking about this, but I try to condense it a bit. Um, a few years ago, my uh, grandson went to school and his best friend came to school the first day and then um, didn't come to school the second day. And it ended up that he had a brain tumor and he died a few months later. So my grandson in elementary school was processing the death of his friend. Um, so the way that parents can help children to grieve is first of all, to sit down and think, what are the losses involved in this? I mean, the, the death of a friend, this illness, this terrible illness he had that went on months and then his death. My grandson had many losses in it, many feelings about it. So sitting down as an adult, even with your partner or someone else, and just make a list of what could be involved in that. So, of course, the death of a friend, everyone's on, a, on alert, like, oh, wow, this is really big. We need to really pay attention to this. But a move, even to like, oh, now you're in a bigger house. Oh, don't you love it? There's a park across the street. You get your own room. Isn't this awesome? It doesn't even cross our minds that there's any losses involved in it. We're just thinking, we're thinking it through adult eyes. We're seeing it through adult eyes that it's great. And yet our child is going, I remember what it felt like to sit in the corner of that room. Oh, I remember my favorite pillow here. And in my window, I could see the tree with a squirrel in it. And I could see my friend when they were coming. So I could go to the door and run out and play with them. And I love that school. And so they have a very different experience than we have. So just put yourself inside their shoes and write down, physically write down the losses that you think could be involved in that experience. And then wait for them to bring them up or you, you know, take the lead and ask about that. Like, what do you do after writing those down? So we think as adults, we think, okay, let's sit down and have this big talk. I've made my. Three o'clock today. There's going to be <laughs> snacks ready. Let's go. Let's go. But it doesn't work like that. So um, I was actually able to great privilege to help edit the um, Helping Children with Laws program from the Grief Recovery Method in 2020. And I uh, I brought up this idea of on the go, on the go uh, grief recovery. And so with children, you are looking for those on the go moments. And Becky, you illustrated it perfectly. He's bringing up about the house and you could start as a parent, we start feeling a bit like guilty and a bit defensive and you know, we start, no, it's, this is great. Don't you love the new place? Which of course, then they just 
shut down, <laughs> completely shut down. But doing what you did, oh, yeah, oh, tell me more about that, what's happening with that. And then the next step would be to say, um, it's going to sound a bit odd at first, but you you guide them to say, um, is there anything you'd like to say to your house? Like, is there something you want to say to your room? Like, room, I loved the blue, how blue you were. <laughs> I loved that little corner where the sun would shine in it. What would you say to the room? And you could even say, um, if they bring up, oh yeah, and that time I spilled hot chocolate on the carpet and the room stank for weeks. You'd say, um, oh, I'm sorry, I spilled hot chocolate <laughs> on the floor of your room. I room, I really liked you. And that helps them complete mm. their experience, their loss of the room. I love that. I love that so much. That's so practical. I feel like I maybe took the first step of giving him space to talk, but now I'm going to use that in the future of like practicing. Okay, let's talk to the whatever the thing is that you're missing. That's really good. Um, so back to the myths about grief. One you said is you're meant to grieve alone. Mm -hmm. Like that's very much our society mm -hmm. for sure. Even when people, you know, are going through a loss, it's like we say to each other sometimes like, oh, she needs her space. You know, when we're, we're collective human mm -hmm. beings, you know, that heal in connection. Um, but are there any other myths that come to mind that are common ones about grief? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the overarching one, um, and this is tough because I mean I'm I'm an old woman and I've lived through many losses in my life and I've walked beside many people in their losses, and I don't want them to feel bad. We don't want our friends and our family to feel bad, but how that comes across to them is there's no space to feel bad, that I have to feel better. I have to make myself feel better. So the myth of don't feel bad or that that's going to help heal our loss or our grief uh, becomes uh, permeated into our society. Mm. I love that. I mean, even today, one of my clients posted a question and she was like, I'm overcome with just sadness today. She's like moving. She's in the middle of a move. Speaking of moving, any advice for me other than box breathing? And my gut reaction was like, just to be with it and, you know, be with that sadness, let it move through you. Um, just thinking of what you've taught me through the grief recovery method and just the ways that I've grieved. Sometimes it's not a solution. It's just like learning to be with what is, learning to feel. Um, but I'm curious, yeah, what you would say to that. Giving uh, language to what we're feeling. So there's there's several parts of it, right? There's the somatic, what's happening in our body. Um, and then there's also the language piece of it. Like, what is the sadness made up of? Uh, what are the losses in it? And to go through and think, I'm purely just throwing things out here, but um, I have some good memories with this place, or I had hopes and dreams for this house, what would happen here, what my life would be like here, and it wasn't like that. Um, so being able to, to express it and give it language, it, it moves the story into our thinking brain, which is a helpful place to go. Uh, 
and uh, and can guide us through it. So I would I would add that piece to mm. it. That's so good. That's so good. Another myth that comes up that I think was the biggest one I believed for a while was be strong for others. Mm-hmm. I remember when I lost my dad, I got the phone call from my mom. And the last thing she said before hanging up was, but Becky, you have to keep going. You have to make your daddy proud because I had just started college like that week. And so cue the next 10 years of just like trying to make him proud and keep going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anytime another trauma would come up in my life, I remember feeling like I'm dealing with this well because I'm being strong by, you know, achieving something in my career or, you know, quote unquote, keeping it together. And that really led to to burnout, to nervous system breakdown, to to all the things. Um, and so learning what you have taught me about grief recovery and going through the workshops has just been similar to that first interaction I had with you, just like a, like a release, a relief to just be with what is really here. Um, what are some unhelpful things you'd say that you've heard like well-intentioned people say in response to others grief? What are some common things that we say in this society? Um, I want to take a moment and hold some space for uh, those of us who have said those things to start out with to say, we have good intentions. We, we want good for the people around us. Uh, so things I've heard are um, there, if someone dies, they're in a better place. Uh, they lived a good life. I distinctly remember that at my grandmother's grandfather's funeral, where this old gentleman came up to me and put his arm around me and said, "Well, Sarah, you know, he's he's lived a good life." Uh, but what landed on me was this dismissing of what I was feeling. Uh, mm-hmm. So, in all those good intention things, that's. That's the the meaning of it that we often receive is it's not okay to hurt. Mm-hmm. We can spiritualize it, over-spiritualize it with um, they're in heaven now or they're not in pain anymore. Well, they may not be, but I'm pretty sure I am right here, right now in pain. Yeah, I love, I love that. Just the preface too of it's all good intentions, you know, and I remember a similar one of just when my dad died, somebody was like, at least you had a good relationship with your dad. I would give anything for that. And I understood stepping in her shoes, right? Like this, there's no malicious thing about that, you know, um, comment, but I felt shame. I felt shame for that. Like, oh, now it's like bad that I'm not being grateful because at least I had good time with him. But it, it's exactly what you said. It like sends the message that I'm not allowed to take space to feel really, really mad and sad that my dad is gone. Could I interject something? A thought with this mm-hmm. is that when you mentioned um, this person really was comparing your relationship with your father to their relationship with their father. And that leads to uh, uh, something pretty deep and important for us is that each each loss is different that my loss is different than your loss even though we both lost fathers we both lost mothers and I think about if the grandmother dies and she has three children 
And each one of those children has two children. And each one of those daughters, one of them lives overseas and they only see the grandmother once a year, once every two years. Um, they weren't even raised with the same language. The grandchildren weren't raised with the same language. The second child is estranged from her mother. The third child lives next door and the grandchildren came over after school and made cookies with grandma several times a month. Grandma dies. We now have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine people who all are going to grieve differently because their relationship with the person is different. That's why grief cannot be compared one to another. It's so true. And just even unpacking that more, because that's a common response, you know, that I've given to people that I've heard people give is let's say like somebody's going through a breakup and the immediate response is like, oh, I get it. I've been through that. You know, like what is, I guess, invalidating about that or like, why is that not helpful? Um, let's take, okay, let's take breakups. Um, some breakups are because you chose to break up with a person. Some breakups are because the other person chose to break up with a person. Some breakups are after uh, things went really well for a while and then something went off kilter and you are bewildered and confused. Uh, sometimes they come out of the blue. Sometimes they've been building for a long time. And uh, fundamentally it says, I, I know how you feel. And whenever we say to someone else, I know how you feel, we are already tipping off the edge of, of empathy uh, into really thinking about ourselves, and which I also want to say is natural for us to do, to think about ourselves, to try to figure ourselves out. But in this case, it doesn't um, do what we hoped it would do for the other person. Along those lines, I have a distinct memory of being in one of your grief recovery workshops where we paired up with partners and you trained us how to like be as a partner because part of the exercises was um, writing letters to like those who have passed or to whatever loss there was and then reading them aloud. And you trained us that as the listening partner, not to reach out and touch them, even though that's a natural response to want to hug them or mm -hmm. put our hand on their thigh or even the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, like any kind of vocal verbal affirmation that has always stuck with me. And I'm curious the, the reasoning behind that, like what is, yeah, just kind of tell us about that. Thanks for that great question. In that situation, we are witnesses to their story. So we are a heart with ears is the grief recovery method when it says uh, not a mouth. You notice there's no mouth in that analogy. We are a heart with ears and no mouth. We are focused on that silent empathy of presence. Empathy can be communicated without words very, very deeply by focus, by attentiveness, um, by stillness in their presence. And um, when we interrupt their process, we are interrupting their process and their attention goes back to us. So if I put my hand on your shoulder, their attention will now move to me instead of remaining with themselves. And we, a lot of 
um, our mind inside of us is, is trying to distract ourselves from the pain already. We are, it's like looking for ways to not have to uh, hold our own painful feelings. And so it's very easily pulled away from that story. So to allow them this beautiful gift of walking into their own story in a place where there are edges, meaning there's support, um, there's trust. That's what I mean by this edges. They're not just, it's not just going to fall all over it and knock them sideways. They can stay, stay with it and, and hold on to their sense of self while they do it. To provide that gift for someone is a rare, rare and precious gift. You're so good at that. And it's hard to do. I'm sure it takes practice just because as humans, like we want to jump in. We, we are uncomfortable with silence. And I think that's why I felt so much healing every time I was in your space, because you you just ooze empathy, Sarah. Like, I just remember like so many moments, just even your facial expression, um, the way your eyes, you know, would wince when I would tell my pain and how healing just that is, just having somebody witness, you know, your space without... I mean, we were separated by a Zoom thing anyway. It's not like you could lunge at me and hug me, um, but how healing that was. And I also remember from that workshop, you touching a little bit on the power of like tapping into different parts of our brain through writing with our hand, through speaking out loud. Can you tell us about just the power of using different parts of our brain or different like modalities that you teach in those workshops for grief recovery? Mm -hmm. Um, it's interesting as a therapist or a clinical counselor, um, we think of psychology or counseling as a um, as something we talk about and uh, and then it's kind of over. But in actuality, my experience is that it's the practice of the skills that you learn that become a permanent part of your process, a change in process. And so, um, as a teacher, because that was my <laughs> background also, I'm looking for all the ways that are possible to, uh, to help us remember and implement changes when we are in a heightened state of anxiety or fear. And uh, so learning to calm your body so that you can access <laughs> the ability to think is part of it. And then it's the practice of it. So, so the writing, the sensory, that writing in sand <laughs> with your finger, using different colors to create a sensation uh, map, a, 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 like a gingerbread man with all the colors and zigzags and, and shapes and that, def that describe uh, what you're feeling in your body. Any of those things, all of those things help you to, uh, to one, you recognize I'm a person over here and I'm feeling these things, but they're not the whole of me. Mm -hmm. And I can name what's going on for me, but I'm not immersed in what's going on for me. I can begin to look at it, to sort through it, to process it by doing that. What actually happens like in the brain or in the body 
when, as opposed to just like keeping these ruminating thoughts of whatever the loss or transition is in your head compared to getting it out on paper? Like why is the practice of actually writing something mm -hmm. out powerful? I really function at a quite practical level. Um, so practically what I find is that it breaks this cycle and um, I was going through something really difficult at one point in my life and I had done all the to do that needed to be done for it. And I went to bed, I was still anxious, very anxious about it. And I went to bed that night and I, I had a dream, I actually dreamed about walking down the street and there was this black hole in front of me in the street. And around me was normal life, like garbage cans and cats and houses and people. And But there was this black hole looming. And I had a choice to make whether I was going to fall into the black hole or stay on the street. And that point of decision, in this case, it was visual. And then I ended up drawing it and having an artist draw it. It's called My Life Street. Uh, and I have people work with that, draw it, think about it, name it, practice it so that they can break the old pattern and uh, and recognize the moment of decision. So I think a, a simple answer to your question is writing it allows you to find the moment of decision to go from, I, I could make this choice and go this way, or I could go this way, but I do have a choice in it. It's not something that overtakes me and I'm just swept away by the ruminating thoughts. I have these moments of choice to, to do different, to be different. That makes so much sense. Uh, it always feels like it slows me down and I feel more conscious, you know, when I am writing compared to exactly what you said, just being like overswept by the ruminating thoughts and emotions. So, oh my gosh, I have so many more questions. One is, what does it mean to complete your grief? I remember that was the first time I ever heard that term was in the grief mm -hmm. recovery method. Mm -hmm. uh, completing grief in the grief recovery method is um, where you are communicating the things that have not been said, either because you never said them, uh, because they were not heard, because sometimes we said something to a person, but you, you think they didn't listen to them or hear them, or we just need to say them again. So these might be apologies that we make for things that we oh, we have that sense of, I wish I'd done something differently, wish I'd done it better than I did. I wish I'd done more or said more. Um, or I, um, I lost my train of thought. It's <laughs> like that. Back. It's like that steps you took Ollie through with the transitioning of the house. It's like giving him space to process, but then talking to the house. So is it that it's that that you're talking about completing your grief is, you know, being able to speak what wasn't spoken? Yes, exactly like that. Thanks for bringing up that illustration again to the forefront of this conversation. Um it's in there, like he was talking about these these things, and he starts talking about this and that and the other. But below that are these unspoken things that need to be said. Yeah. I also remember one time you um, speaking with Sebastian and I, and you brought up a side of grief that I had never considered at that point. 
And that's loss for like who you hoped to have become, you know, the obvious grief is like the things that are lost or the ways we messed Mm -hmm. up. And, but you talked about grief being, you know, you said, Sebastian, you got to grieve like this version of you that you had hoped to be at this point in your life. Can you speak to that? Mm -hmm. The loss of hopes, the loss of dreams, and the loss of expectations, including not just expectations for others, but expectations for yourself. So when my mother died, um, she not only, I lost her, but I lost her at my wedding. I lost her meeting my grandchildren. And I also have many times thought about the version of myself that would have been had I had a mother. Who, who would that, Sarah, have been? Um, would she have trusted um, older women more? Because that's something that I've always had to work on because of her loss. Uh, and to grieve that person that I can't go back and become. I am this person with this story in this life. Mm. Yep. That is powerful. So we, before we come in for a landing, the last two questions that I want to ask you, Sarah, this has been so good. And um, I could talk to you for hours, honestly, about this. But one thing that comes up is like, is grief really ever complete if we like continue to get hit by after all these years you know a couple nights ago it hit me again out of nowhere for the first time Mm -hmm. in a while I opened up my bible and there was a picture of me and my dad and I was on his lap I was like 10 and all of a sudden I just felt this like pang go through my heart like it just literally hurt not physically Mm -hmm. it was more like energetically and emotionally Mm -hmm. and the best way I can describe it is just this like metaphysical spiritual pain. And I, I don't know how to describe it, but I, I listened to my body, let the tears spill. I talked to my dad. I did the talking thing. And at the same time as I'm talking, I'm like questioning, can he actually hear me? Where the heck even is he? Like, you know, that going through my head. And then I'm like also praying to God, just sharing how praying and sharing how much it sucked and how angry I felt that, all I have is this stupid little picture. Like it just doesn't feel like enough and it's not fair. And I wish I could hug him and touch him. And it's been like 15 years and I've done a lot of healing around this, you know, wound, but can you speak to that? Like, does that ever go away? Mm -hmm. You know? So this might rock your world for a moment, but that is healed. That response is a healed response where you can feel the feelings, you can name them, you can accept them, you can respond to them, you can stick with painful feelings, um, not trying to push them away. You can uh, speak your own authenticity, your own honesty about your experience, what it's like to live life without him. And then move into the life you have and the world you have. That is, that is complete grief. Uh, you are correct. That did rock my world. <laughs> was, I honestly feel like that with every interaction with you, though, Sarah, to be honest. Anytime we had sessions together, I remember walking away feeling like that was n- it was never a waste of time. Like I, I always had this like monumental shift. I'm sorry. What were you about to say? 
uh, I was just going to give the illustration of you of looking at a photograph and incomplete grief in the photograph, the painful memories are in sharp focus, like hyper focus. Someone, I guess, who's kind of techie was describing it to me yesterday and, and say, yeah, it's like it has more pixels than the other parts of it. It's just so sharp. And the rest of your life is kind of dull and out of focus in the background. And then in in as your grief completes, it begins to reverse. So the pleasant memories where the happy memories become to come come clearer into focus and the painful memories begin to get a little fuzzy in the background so they're still in the picture Mm -hmm. they're still part of your life and from time to time one of those painful memories will come up but your your memory of your father's death is it's woven into the fabric of your life your existence it cannot be taken out that thread cannot be removed but it has woven into the picture of Becky Astey. And once in a while that, that thread or that image comes up and you need to review it as the person you are on that date and that time in your experience in life. And that's beautiful. That's so helpful, Sarah. So for those who this may have stirred a lot up or just you know, brought up the thought of like, hey, there's some grief, actually, I would like to learn how to move through how to complete. Um, Guys, Sarah is the woman for the job. Where can people most easily find you if they want to reach out? I am on uh, the Grief Recovery Methods website. I have a, um, a little mini area on that so they can reach me through that. And uh I offer a free 30-minute consult where you can describe what happened to you, and I'll share with you what I'm able to offer you, what the grief recovery method is about, how long it takes, how much it costs, those kinds of things. And then you can decide if you want to work with me. So I I offer that with a, a whole heart to each person that I work with before we begin our work. Beautiful. Well, Sarah, is there anything else that you think would be important that you want listeners just to understand about grief or anything before we hop off? Something that a an illustration came to my mind that I've been using the last month or so, and that's imagine you're on a houseboat going down a river, and uh, which is life going by. And if you turn back around, way back in the distance is where you used to be where the loss happened, where the pain happened. It is on the shore. It's not in a boat. It's not moving down the river, but you are. And when we, when we are filled with grief, we're sitting on the back of the houseboat, looking back at that house, trying to change something that happened in our past. So grief work and, and the work you do, Becky, and many of us who are in the healing work, we are working to the place where you can move to the front of the boat and start um, piloting it on down the river because no longer are you in the house, but also the other person isn't in that house anymore. Even if they are still alive, they have also moved down the river. That moment in time does not exist anymore. And so here we are in our new life moving on. 
I love how visual you are because I'm a visual learner. You have a visual for like everything. Okay, I lied. One more question. You know how with trauma, we talk about like big T, big T trauma, little T trauma, almost like different categories or levels. With grief, are there any categories or levels? Um, I find that it's more what happens within a certain period of time. So multiple things happening multiple losses even if they are unrelated like losing a job and then your your pet dies and then um, your parents get a divorce or that that can lead to uh, just it's just more than you can process it overwhelms your capacity so it doesn't have to be any big thing that adds up to um People say, I just don't feel myself anymore, or I can't read. I can't even focus to read. I can't think something's wrong. Uh, So I often have people coming with that kind of response when that's happened. Okay. I lied again. You're just, I love talking to you. The last question for real. A lot of my listeners are in the midst of a painful period, season, decade, two decades in their marriage. And can you put any words to any possible grief they may be experiencing? Because, you know, I know they might be thinking like, it's not like my husband's dead. Like he's here. Something just feels awful right now. Like what could that woman potentially be grieving in a situation like that? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll just, say two minutes. <laughs> Give us a, a few. A few things are, uh, I mean, I'm laughing, but I'm not laughing. I am so resonating. And as you were talking, I went immediately into that space uh, where your listeners would be. And I think the loss of self, um, who you thought you were, how you thought you would respond, uh, even your belief about your own capacity to handle difficult things, uh, your ability to um, influence uh, your spouse or your marriage or make a difference in it. the the loss of um, uh, empowerment, uh, the loss of safety, uh, the loss of trust, the loss of value, of worth, just to name a few. So good. Well, it's obvious we need to have another episode because there's so much more we could talk about. But this was a treat for me just to see you face to face for the first time. I know listeners just hear audio, but I get to actually see Sarah Um, you're a gift to this world, a gift to my life. And I know this conversation is going to help so many people. So thank you. Thank you. You also have launched me uh, in many ways into some of the work that I do. So thank you. Mm, Love you, friend. Ah, I'm honored you found today's episode worth your listen and time to hang out with me today. You know, for some of us, this podcast is just the thing you need to support you towards your breakthrough. But for others, we know we need a deeper level of support and guidance. So if you're a highly ambitious woman who's ready to repair deep, unshakable connection in your marriage, I'd love to tell you about my client coaching program called Root to Rise. This is the life-changing transformational container that will teach you exactly how to launch your marriage to the next level by moving trauma out of your body and stepping back into your power. Even if you've already tried everything, even if you're caught on the fence of should I stay or should I go, and even if your husband's not on board today. 
So look for my link in the show notes to book a call with me and we'll just talk about what's working, what's not, where you want to go. And very easily, I'll be able to tell you if and how I can help you. And if not me, I can still point you in the direction of some resources that can. So either way, tons of clarity. We'll have some fun getting to know each other while we're at it. And that's it for today. Huge hugs, my friend. I'll chat with you next Friday.